0: Welcome to Hope For Right Now, a Walking With Purpose podcast. Walking With Purpose is a Catholic women's apostolate that creates fresh and relevant Bible studies to lead women to personally know Christ through Scripture. Hi, I'm Lisa Brennickmeyer, and I'm joined by Laura Phelps. We are two friends passionate about unpacking God's Word and applying it to our everyday lives. Each week, we will step out of the discouragement the world provides by grabbing hold of the hope we find in God's Word. Never have we been more convinced of the importance of women being grounded in hope. No matter where you are in the spiritual journey, we pray you'll stick around because God has a word for your heart, and His word changes everything. So open your heart, open your Bible, and invite God in. Hello, and welcome back to the Hope for Right Now podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Brennickmeyer.
1: And I am your other host, Laura Phelps. And what we're continuing to read in this first season are some passages from the book of John. We are doing the famous I Am Statements by Jesus. So last week, we looked at John chapter 10, verse 14, and that was where Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. And today we are going to move to John 11. We're in chapter 11, verses 25 and twenty six. And this is where Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. So like always, we want to see how this impacts us personally. So we're going to explore the way that Jesus, the resurrection and the life, brings hope to what's dead. So this is the fifth I am statement. We are moving right along. So go ahead. And if you've got your Bible, let's open up to John chapter 11. So in this chapter, it opens with the death of Lazarus. Lazarus was a very dear friend of Jesus. You'll remember he's the brother of Mary, Mary, the one who anointed the Lord with ointment and then wiped his feet with her hair, and also the brother of Martha. We all know who Martha is. She's the one who was faithfully serving and didn't have that great an attitude about it. So in this passage, what we see here is Lazarus gets ill. And so Mary and Martha, they send for Jesus and Jesus gets the message and then here in John eleven four four, we see his response. It says, but when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness is not unto death. It is for the glory of God so that the son of God may be glorified by means of it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Okay, like, This seems like a bizarre response, totally bizarre, right? If Jesus really loved them as much as this passage says he did, why on earth would he not have hustled to Bethany where his friends were? And I just want to point out if we're thinking, well, maybe Lazarus wasn't really that sick and Jesus knew that. Well, we see that that is not the case right there in verse 14. Because in verse 14, Jesus says, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake... I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Okay. I love this so much, but honestly, Lisa, can you please shed a little light on this? Well, this is all about Jesus's
0: timing, right? That's the part of this that we find perplexing and his timing is all his own, as in he knows why he waits and by and large, we usually don't. And oftentimes, we never know. And that's tough. And we're going to talk about that a little bit later. But as this story goes on, we get to see how his waiting led to a miracle. So when Jesus first came to Bethany, which is the town of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. And we read in John eleven nineteen 19, that many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. They were sitting Shiva, which was the Jewish custom of sitting and mourning for seven days following the death of a loved one. So friends would come and visit and pray with the people who were mourning. And then in verse 20, we read, When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him while Mary sat in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. So this passage reminds me of a story that I heard this week, and it made me look at these verses in John 11 in a totally different way. It's the testimony of an amazing woman named Debbie Herbeck, and she's actually going to be one of our speakers at our upcoming Sisters of Strength mother-daughter conference. So you'll hear more from her and more about her. Debbie's a convert from Judaism, and I was listening to her story on the journey home on YouTube, and we'll link this in the show notes. I really recommend that you watch the whole interview. Super interesting and inspiring. So Debbie grew up in a conservative Jewish home in Chicago and was raised in the Jewish faith, going to Saturday school in the synagogue. And she talks in the interview about photos on the wall in her grandparents' apartment who were modern heroes of Israel. These are people they knew and had a relationship with, people like Golda Meir and Yitzhak Rabin. And she was completely enfolded in this Jewish community, so insulated in this Jewish community that she didn't actually know who Jesus was. And she hadn't been exposed to Christianity at all, which seems incredible today. But of course, back then we didn't have the internet. Life was really different. And a really pivotal moment in her life came when she and her twin sister went ahead of their family for a family vacation. They were all together in Florida, but when they landed, family friends met them and told them that their parents were not coming. And they delivered the heartbreaking news that their older brother had been in a car accident on his way home from college. So they went to the friend's home to wait. And Debbie walked outside and was standing by the pool. And she reflects back on that time of her life and says that she didn't know if God was a personal God who cared about her, but she prayed. And what she said was, God, if you're here, if you exist, if you care about our family, save my brother's life. And probably five minutes after she prayed that prayer, the phone rang and she was looking through the window and could see just by the reaction of their family's friend that her brother had died. And she can remember thinking, okay, God, where are you? And she and her sister got back on the plane and returned to Chicago. And Debbie explained that there are Jewish traditions, rites of mourning that you go through as a family. So you gather together and you sit Shiva. So what I was describing earlier, that's what they were doing in Chicago all those years later. And family and friends come to your home. There's a prayer vigil. They feed you. So they do this in the family's home. And Debbie had all sorts of questions for people there. She was walking around and asking people things like, Where is my brother now? And what happens when we die? Where is God? How does God allow this to happen? And no one had the answers. So they directed her to the rabbi. And when she laid those questions out to the rabbi, the rabbi was quiet. And then he finally said, I don't know. I don't have answers to those questions, but I'll pray that you'll find the answers you're looking for. And you'll have to listen to her tell the story to get the details of what happened next. But for the sake of time, I'm going to fast forward to a day when she was a student at the University of Michigan, and she was invited by a friend to see the movie Jesus of Nazareth. And as she watched, she was amazed to realize that Jesus was Jewish And then a specific scene unfolded when Jesus approached a little town called Bethany and a woman ran towards him crying and fell at his feet. And she said, Lord, where were you? If you had been here, our brother would not have died. And Debbie couldn't believe it because those had been her exact words when her brother Mark died. And it made Debbie want to run from the room. It was too much, but she chose to stay. And she watched as Jesus went to the tomb and she knew it had been four days. And she knew as a Jew that four days meant that Lazarus was now ritually unclean and Jesus should not draw near to him. There was an opinion among the rabbis that the soul hovered near the body for three days. But after that, there was no hope of resuscitation. And then she watched and she said, Jesus call Lazarus forth from the tomb and resurrect him from the dead. And she thought to herself, what if, what if this man is the Messiah? What if this man has power over death? And my friends, I just want to tell you that what we know from this passage and others is that this man, Jesus, does have power over death. He puts action behind those words when he raises Lazarus from the dead. When we read Jesus' words in John eleven twenty five, 25, I am the resurrection and the life, what we are receiving is eternal truth and a personal challenge. With those words, Jesus is saying that he alone is the source and the giver of life. And we see this in other passages. And you can look this up on your own passages like John 17, 1 through 2, and Ephesians 2, 1 through 5. Jesus has power over death, which means that he can give us eternal life. Death does not have the last word. That's the eternal truth. But here's the personal challenge. We have a choice in terms of whether or not we believe that. And then we have a choice in terms of how that truth will impact how we deal with death in our own lives. And this can be the death of dreams, the death of hopes. The death of marriages, the death of people. And this may be a new way of looking at things for you. It most certainly was for Debbie. And her story totally makes me look at this scene in Bethany with such fresh eyes. So, what about you, Laura? What do you think? What what strikes you about what I've just talked about?
1: Well, first of all, I'm just so glad that you pointed out that our experience of death, it's not just reserved for people we love that die, right? But there's also the other deaths that we experience that we all have experienced, which is a death of our hopes or a death of our dreams, um, death of relationships. So I think that's really key to remember as we continue to talk about this. But in either case, whether it's, it's a death of a relationship or a dream or an actual person, eternal perspective is a game changer. And this, Lisa, this is something I never had until I actually started doing walking with purpose. Bible studies is learning to adjust the way that I view things and not just keeping my face down in earth and the world, but that there is this eternal perspective. And and that's such a game changer. But like, I just want to be being totally honest when I'm in the moment, when you're in that moment, when you're struck with the reality of a death, that's hard. Like, I don't just instantly go to eternal perspective. I wish I did, but I'm willing to bet it's probably, I share this because I don't think everybody does go right to the eternal perspective. I think we all struggle with this. I think everybody, if I sat down with everybody listening and said, you know, okay, what's your Lord, where were you moment? Like, don't you think we would all have that? Like, even when we have the strongest faith and we believe in eternal life, I think there's always that thing that just sideswipes us and, and we fall to our knees and we do ask, we say, Lord, where were you, right? If you had been here and fill in the blank, what wouldn't have happened in your life if the Lord were there? And, um, and I bring this up. I've got, a, a, you know, the great example, unfortunately, for those of you that know some of my story that I had two children at Sandy Hook Elementary School on the day of the shooting. And this was a question, Lord, where were you, that resonated all throughout our community. Everybody wanted to know, like, where were you, Lord? Where were you? And I remember there was one friend, actually, who came over the days after the shooting. And I I could picture it like it was yesterday. He was standing in my kitchen. He was holding this big casserole that I'm sure his wife made. And Lisa, he was just trying so hard to understand what God was doing that morning. You know, he just wanted to know where he was. And he knew that I was a woman of faith, right? You have to pass the the giant statue of Our Lady to get into my house. So he knew that I was a woman of faith. And I remember him saying to me, just holding this casserole, saying, Laura, he's God. He could have stopped it. He could have had a tree fall in the street, blocking the shooter from reaching the school. And now this was back in 2012, and I don't believe it's a coincidence that just a year prior in 2011, that's when I had my conversion of heart, which is what I like to call my reversion back to the faith. And so at the time of the shooting, I was in that honeymoon phase with Jesus. I was all on fire for the Lord. And so when everything went down in those crazy days that followed, I went into action mode. So I was blogging about the faith. I was just trying to offer encouragement in dark times. And so I was sending friends scripture and just really anything that offered some sort of hope and light and really anything that kept me busy. And I never asked in those early days, where were you, Lord? I think I just, in that moment, I just trusted that he was there. And so I didn't try to figure him out or understand him. But as time went on, that changed. That really changed, you know, because my two little ones that were present at school that day, because they survived, we were still left with what I refer to as residual suffering, right? Like there's no way to measure the psychological and emotional damage that comes with a trauma such as this. And to anybody listening who has endured the unthinkable in your own life, you know what I mean? It affects everything And everyone, it's almost like there's this illness or like this cancer that just doesn't go away. Like you think you get rid of it, but then it manifests itself in another area of your life. And I remember sharing this with a counselor that I felt like in those days that I was handed a giant clay cistern that was filled with water. And in the cistern were holes. And every hole represented one of my children. And I was desperately trying to cover the holes to keep them from spilling out. And I have four children. And I only have two hands, so obviously this was impossible. And so as the chips began to fall around me, and they, they did, that's when I too began to ask, where are you? Why don't you step in faster? Why don't you heal the hurt? What are you waiting for? And then, and then the lies, that's when the lies start to creep in. And I'd start to ask things like, is it because of my sin? Right, Lord? Like, oh, this must be because of my past. I'm being punished, right? Because I couldn't understand why else he wouldn't show up and why he wouldn't come quickly. I really believe that it's the delay that I struggle the most with. It's that delay. And we we read in this scripture, he stayed two days longer. And gosh, like, don't we all go, why? Like, why? I remember Father John Hopkins answering this in a reflection. Father John is one of our Walking With Purpose chaplains, and he's amazing. And he did a reflection on this passage, and I actually still have an orange sticky note stuck inside of my Bible with his words. And he said, this period of waiting is not a mistake or a miscalculation, but part of his plan to generate faith in his disciples. And that was like super helpful for me to hear. Also, we see that Jesus says this illness is not unto death it's for the glory of god and i think that's really a helpful way of looking at anything that intersects our life that we don't like right that we could use it as a means to just glorify the lord and yes that is helpful but here's where i can get stuck in the weeds especially when we look at this passage today i know what happens to lazarus right we all know and i know that mary and martha they get their brother back and while it probably felt like forever to them, do we not look at our own suffering, right? How many of us that have been suffering for years where Jesus doesn't seem to come and do a thing about it? And then we look at Mary and Martha crying about four days and you're like, hey, ladies, four days is nothing, right? I don't know. Knowing that whatever I endure is ultimately for the glory of God, like I said, super helpful. But make no mistake, that doesn't lessen the pain, <laughs> right? I would love. For God to come quickly and heal every wound, everyone, myself, my marriage, my children. But I don't know, maybe it's, it's, it's clicking into that eternal perspective, right? I have to trust in his timing. I have to. And I have to believe that just because I don't see or feel like something is happening in this waiting, it doesn't mean that God is not at work, right? And so, so I know this. I'm, it's not easy. It's not easy, especially when it looks like he's handing out miracles in record speed to everyone around you when you're left waiting for years, right? Like, how many of us feel like we are just left waiting with no change, no movement, no hope? You know, I just wonder who's listening, who is there in that place? Because, honestly, that's where I am right now, and it's hard. My friend, I know, because I know
0: your story. and. I know what you're waiting for. And all this heartache, I just, yeah, I just want to honor all that you shared. And you can condense it down so articulately, but it's just like so much more, right, than a, than a summary, all the heartache that is held within you. And so this is just such sacred ground when we get into areas like this and we start talking about it. And I just acknowledge that. But I also wanna just circle back to something that you said um, and something I've said and something that this passage seems to say, which is this picture of Jesus when he's incarnate and he's on earth, delaying, therefore being in one place and not being in another. So in delaying where he is, he is therefore not in Bethany with Mary and Martha, right? And so we can say to him, Why are you delaying? Where were you? Why have you not come? Why are you not coming? And that is never a fair and accurate question because he is with us. The risen, resurrected Jesus can be everywhere at once. So there's never a moment where he is not there. He was there. He is there. He's with us now. What gets delayed is evidence of his action. So he doesn't hold back and not come. He is right there. At the moment of the deepest trauma, he was there. And he does not delay in responding to us, but the action that we see, that, that is delayed. And what is so hard, without question, is that the worst kind of suffering is the kind where we have no idea why something is happening or has happened. And and we're just looking at just senselessness. And in that moment, if we are going to move forward in a strong and healthy way and not just be defined by that moment, then we're going to have to hold three truths in tension. And it's hard because those three truths are this. Number one, that God is in control. Number two, that God is good. And number three, that God is not fixing our situation the way that we desire. And when we are looking at something that feels like a death, and I think it can be the death of innocence, that's another area where a death can come that has such, such big consequences. And we can't see how God could possibly resurrect it. And we're looking at it and it just, it's something that just seems permanently lost. And we are grieving in those moments where we're being called to hold all those things, those three things as true simultaneously. And I, I, I am walking through this in my own life, and I'm pondering something that I've read in a book this week, a book that I've just devoured this week called Hope is the First Dose. And if you've experienced trauma or tragedy of some kind or any massive thing, really, I highly recommend this book. This is a book I could not put down. And there are books on suffering that make you want to throw them across the room when you're in pain. Um, I have thrown books across the room like that, they just feel like platitudes. Um, Not this one. Not this one. Because the author is a brain surgeon, Dr. Warren, and he's writing about his intense grief after losing his 19 year old son. And he just he writes in a way that he gets it and he can articulate it. And there is just comfort in someone Naming the pain that we walk through so well and not from the side observing somebody else's, like he's writing about his own. And and it brought me tremendous comfort. But just weeks after he lost his son, he was asked to perform emergency brain surgery on an eight year old boy. And he was asked because he was the only one there who could do it. And he saved the little boy's life. And after the surgery, he went to the chapel at the hospital where he encountered a pastor. And that pastor had lost not just one, but two children. And the two men knew each other well. And they just sat there in silence. And then the pastor broke it and he said, You wish somebody could give you back your son too, right? Such painful words. And he continued and he said, I've been there too. And I know it doesn't help when someone says, I know what you were feeling, because I don't know exactly what you were feeling. Just like you couldn't have known exactly what I was feeling when my kids died. But I know one thing for sure. And he looked at his friend and he said, You are in a lot of danger right now. And Dr. Warren was like, danger? Like, what do you even mean? And the pastor said, yeah, danger. Because this is the point when it's so easy to make an idol out of your pain. And then he asked Dr. Warren to think about the first two commandments. And when Moses went up on the mountain to receive them, and he drew a parallel and he said, you know, Lee, that was his first name. Lee, you're up on a mountain of pain and grief. And you're wondering how you're ever gonna get over it. And the pastor said this, okay, so here's your choice. Are you going to let God help you? Are you going to walk away from him? You can let God be with you on this mountain like he was with Moses. And it's scary. There are thunderclouds and lightning and darkness, and it's terrifying. But he'll be there with you, and he'll give you the playbook, the tools to make it through. And it hurts like he is carving them on the stone tablet of your heart. But when Moses was doing the scary, close-to-God stuff and getting the help he needed, Aaron and the rest of the people stayed away from the cloud and the fire and the darkness where God was, and they made themselves a God they could touch and feel. A lot of people do that with grief and pain. They fix their eyes and their hearts on a casket or a divorce or diagnosis or an experience of abuse or a memory, and they drink or use drugs or they do something else to numb the pain, and they spend their lives holding onto the hurt so tightly that it becomes the only thing they have. That's basically idolatry. It's making a God out of your circumstances instead of letting God help you process them. That's a dangerous place to live. And the way that Dr. Warren processed this because what he would describe, he would say, it can be a trauma in your life, a tragedy in your life. Or then he kept using this an acronym TMT, the massive thing, the massive thing, like what, whatever it is, it was that massive thing that crashed into your life unbidden and uninvited and unexpected. And it just changed everything. It just brought death and devastation in its wake. And what he's challenged us, what Lee Warren in this book challenges us, he says, is that massive thing going to be the thing that happens in your life or a thing that happened? And I've just been sitting with that question. Is this going to be the thing that happened in my life or a thing that happened in my life that I'm going to invite God to help me process? So that's a lot of hard stuff to hear, hard stuff to Think about when we desperately want comfort because we're in pain. And so, Laura, like, how does that hit you? Is that just insensitive? Is it too much? Like, give me, like, how does that hit you in the midst of your pain?
1: Well, gosh. First of all, that's a lot. (laughs) That is a lot. And it's a lot of good. It's a lot of good stuff. And honestly, I have never really heard idolatry used. In, in regard to like that major thing that happens in our lives with our suffering. I've, I've never really looked at it that way. Um, always, you know, when I think of like writing, like if I had to write down my idols, you know, it would be like my children, money, home or, or something like that. I would never think that, oh gosh, have I made these circumstances in my life the thing, right? Like, is this the thing that defines me? Because that I do see. And maybe I just haven't I've, I do see it. I just haven't been calling it for what it is, which is idolatry. I think what I've been seeing is how easy it is for us to have something happen to us. And then we make that our identity, right? Like we just completely live out of that moment and we define ourselves by this trial. So, yeah, that, that's so much for me to process. And it's like as soon as we get off of this podcast, I'm going to order that book. So thank you. Um, That's a lot to think about. That's a lot to think about. What really struck me, Lisa, when you were, when you were telling the story about this pastor, the way that he spoke about grief and pain, he said there were two things that you quoted him saying. And one was, it's a holding tight to. He spoke of the grief and pain as a when we're holding tight to it. And he also used the expression, a fixing eyes on. And that struck me because these are phrases that I know are used to describe our posture towards God. Like dare I say they're almost even prayers, right? Like when we talk about holding tight to God or keep fixing your eyes on the cross, right? We're called to hold tight to Him, fix our eyes on Him. Because something that I know and I, I always love to share is that staring at our suffering, staring at our circumstance, it doesn't make it go away, right? It doesn't make it go away. And so, gosh, so much good stuff. I do agree. I I agree that if we don't do what he says he calls the scary close to God stuff, right? If we don't do that and get the help that we need, this is a dangerous place to live. 100%. Because if we stay living out of that place, what happens is we feed the wound. And one of my favorite expressions is what you feed grows, right? And so this wound then is just festering and growing. And the wound That's where the enemy gains access. And so, yeah, that is dangerous. That is dangerous. And I think if we want to avoid living in this dangerous place, and if we want to avoid making a God out of our circumstances, I think what we need is to have a moment of surrender. And so what do I mean by that? So I'll I'll give you an example. This happened to me months ago in the confessional, and it was just, I was weary. I'll just say that. I was weary on the journey. Family situation, not improving, was just so worried, consumed about my children and their well-being. And I just was at the point where I'm like, do you even care, Lord? Like, do you even care? Do you even have plans to do anything about it? Like, that's where I was. I really was failing to see how any of his timing was good. And so I confessed this, you know, the despair, really. I confessed my despair, discouragement, a lack of hope. And the priest, in just this beautiful gentle whisper, he asked me, why would an all good, all loving, all knowing God permit anything that wasn't for your good? And then he added, he loves your children more than you do. That word love, right? He loves your children. And it sounds so crazy to say that because God loves us, he allows us to suffer, right? Because God loves us. He has us wait. But then let's go back to John. Go back to John 11:5 where we read, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So, when he heard that he was ill, he stayed 2 days longer. I think that word so is important. Right? Because it's saying that because of his love for his friends, he stayed 2 days longer. He delayed because he loved him. And why? Well, because the miracle actually depended on the delay. And it so reminds me of a moment, if I could just share this quick little story about my awesome father. It was last Christmas. And I remember we were standing in front of the fridge in the kitchen and just talking about this situation in my life that honestly, it is a death for me. It, it 100% feels like a death. It's but like the death that comes with no meal train, right? Like you suffer this alone. And um, just something that I've been begging the Lord for years to resurrect. And he has yet to do so. And so my dad in that moment, he reminded me so beautifully that God's time is not the same as our time. And it's 2 Peter 3, 8. But do not ignore this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord... One day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. And that was just, it's the verse we know, like we know our timing is not the same as the Lord's, but it was just really helpful to hear it from my earthly father. And then to drive the point home, he added, he said, And by the way, your mother and I have waited 50 years to see you where you are now. And gosh, that just like right to my heart. It was just a real beautiful moment. And I just, I wish I could see everybody that's listening right now because i just know that there are so many people that are just feeling like the lord is not there for them you know like they're they're just stuck in this delay and waiting for god to restore whatever it is that feels broken or lifeless and i just want to say well first of all i get it like we get it and we are praying for you that's number 1 but also and hear this the best way to hold on to hope when it seems like there is no sign of progress It really is just to remember that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. I mean, think about it. Just think about it. Jesus crucified on that cross, right? Like that looked like no hope. He was dead. He was dead. And for many, that looked like the end, right? But we know it wasn't the end, right? It wasn't the end. It was actually the beginning, right? I I love the expression, it's always darkest before the dawn. And it's true. It's just how God works. And because there will be an end to our suffering one day, because he did what? He died and he rose. We've got this invitation into eternal life. And we've got to keep our eyes fixed on that. We have to remember that in these moments that just come at us and want to rob us of our hope and make us believe that everything is dead, right? We are invited into eternal life. Open up to Revelation 21.4, where we read, he will wipe every tear from their eyes. death." Will be no more, mourning and crying and pain will be no more. I mean, like sign me up for that, right? I don't know. There, there's so much here. I mean, we could talk about this for hours. I think Um, I'll just wrap up here and just offer that maybe instead of staying stuck in the passion, right? Like, what if we learned instead to live in the joy of the resurrection? You know, to remember that Lazarus's illness it was not unto death, and it was for the glory of God. And this is the same. This is true for each of us. All of his miracles, they always point to who he is. Remember that. All miracles point to who he is. And that is the hope of the living and dead. And my friends, the hope that we cling to, this isn't just like worldly hope, right? We cling to a resurrection hope. There is nothing dead that God cannot bring back to life. What
0: a good word that is right there. Nothing, no exception to the rule, not in your life, my friend, not in mine. And so we want to leave you all with, again, just that assurance that we are praying for you. And we want to give you some parting questions, something to journal with, to chew on, to pray through over this next week. And the first may not take you very long to figure out because it may be something that's just at the forefront of your mind all the time. But what situation looks dead to you right now? And are you holding on to your hurt so tightly that it's become the only thing you have? Do you need a moment of surrender? What is your, if you had been here, Lord, moment? And after our discussion today, can you see God's delay through a lens of hope? Will you pray with me, please? In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. Lord, this passage has just taken us on a journey right into our hearts, right into the places that we kind of want to just close off and not think about, because to think about them, to delve into them does feel like we're just on the top of that mountain with Moses where it's dark and it's scary and we feel alone and we can't see what's to come. Help us to remember, Lord, that you're just sitting right there with us in it, that when we open up sometimes what feels like Pandora's box, you're just right there. You're right with us. You're not going anywhere. You're not afraid of what's going to be seen inside. In fact, you already know the solution to what's going to come out of that box. You are already in the future making things better, making things right, bringing resurrection, bringing restoration, bringing change. And because of that, we hope. We hope in you. So thank you for being present to us. Help us to move through our lives, not getting stuck at points that yes, hurt deeply, yes, are significant, but are not meant to define us. God, be glorified in our very darkest, most broken moments. I just ask for that, not just that we would get relief, but that you would actually be glorified in our stories. Thank you for being with us. Thank you for each one of our wonderful listeners. May they know your presence in a really tangible way this week. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Thanks for listening to hope for right now, a walking with purpose podcast. We would love for you to subscribe, share today's episode with a friend and leave a rate and review. And don't forget, subscribe to our weekly newsletter. This is where you'll get sneak peeks into new content, special events, and exclusive discounts sent directly to your inbox. Finally, we know how important it is to keep the conversation going. So we've created a private Facebook group exclusive to listeners like you. You can find the newsletter and Facebook details all in our show notes. It's our privilege to unpack God's word with you, and we can't wait to do it again next week. Until then, friends, don't forget to open your heart, open your Bible, and invite God in.